0: All right, praise God. Let's go to Exodus chapter 6. Um, as we come to the end of Exodus, and, and we are wrapping up, if you, if you look at the last five chapters or so of Exodus, um, it, it's, it's basically what is happening is all that God has commanded Moses and Israel to do, they actually do it. All right? So we're not going to actually work through all of that because we've, we've worked through all of it before and what happens is everything that God has commanded and instructed Israel to do regarding the construction and the building of the tabernacle, they actually do that. And then at the end, the Bible, uh, the Bible says in the last chapter that God's glory comes to rest in the tabernacle. And, 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 that's, and that's the way. This book ends. But what I wanted to do as we come to a close is I wanted to take a few weeks um, to highlight some of the bigger themes and lessons that we should take away from this book, from the book of Exodus. The first thing I want you to understand as we think about the lessons is that Exodus is a book about God. The greatest mistake that we can make in any book of the Bible as we read it is to make it a book primarily about us and it is no different than Exodus. We can read Exodus and we can walk away from Exodus asking the first question, what does Exodus mean to me? But that's not the first question you should ask. The first question that you should ask is, what is Exodus teaching me about God? Because out of that question comes the implications for your life. Does that make sense? What is is being said about God? What is God speaking? What, what, what about his nature is being revealed as I read through the book of Exodus? And as I read through that and as I learn about God, there will be a message and a lesson for me. And so the same thing is going to happen over the next two weeks. We're going to look and, and kind of recap where we've gone for the last eight months. Can you believe that? We've been in Exodus for eight months now. And so we're going to recap where we've been for the last eight months, and we're going to highlight a few things about God as we go. And in so doing, we're going to learn a few things about us. Is that, is that all right? All right, so let's, let's, let's dive in. I got two lessons that I want to share with you this morning about God. Number one, God is a deliverer. And number two, God is sovereign. These are two lessons that we've already learned. We're just going to recap this morning as we draw Exodus to a close. God is a deliverer and God is sovereign. Exodus chapter 6, I asked you to turn there a little while ago. God, the Father, speaks these words to Moses in verse 1. I'm sorry, in verse 5. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold, as slaves, I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In other words, God makes a promise. To Moses. He makes a promise to Moses and he makes a promise to his people. I've heard your groanings. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. God is a deliverer. And then he establishes his promise actually In another promise, look backwards to verse 3 of chapter 6. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Verse 4. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. God is saying to Moses, I promised to Abraham that I would give him and his people the land of Canaan. And I'm going to honor that promise. And no bondage in Egypt is going to stop me from honoring that promise. And you know what? God does it. God rescues. God delivers each, uh, Israel from bondage to Egypt through miracles and through plagues and, and despite a stubborn king and pharaoh and despite a miles wide red sea between them and freedom, God delivers them. How? Because he is Lord, the Lord who delivers. Exodus chapter two, ver- uh, chapter 20 verse 2, it says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, So he promises to Moses that I'm going to deliver, and by chapter 20, what do we read? We read God saying, I have delivered. But why does God need to deliver is a question for us. Why does God have to deliver? This is a lesson for us. He has to deliver because oppression exists. He has to deliver because oppression exists exist. In Exodus, we learn a little bit about oppression. We see it, for example, in the very first chapter. Chapter 1, verse 8, it says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, They join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, and they built for Pharaoh store cities. Pharaoh, a very powerful, powerful man, allows his fear of the other and his fear of loss of power, and his fear of loss of position, and his fear of loss of possessions, according to verse 9 and 10, to drive him towards the worst kind of oppression, slavery. Do you understand that? Do you understand that that there's a possibility, in fact, that fear can drive us towards oppression. In fact, just to put it plainly, sin drives oppression. One of my favorite people in the world, scholar, theologian, and and just an overall good person, a good dude by the name of Dr. Carl Ellis, he defines oppression as sin plus power. Oppression equals sin plus power. The more sinful a powerful person is, the more ways they will be capable of oppressing others. And the more powerful a sinner is, the greater opportunities arise they have to oppress others. When you talk about oppression, you, you understand, look, notice that fear is driving the oppression. This, this sinful, unhealthy fear is driving the oppression and it's leading, this sinful, unhealthy fear is leading Pharaoh to dehumanize and it's leading Pharaoh to oppress and enslave and, and inflict punishment upon an innocent group of people. And you say to yourself, absolutely, that happens all the time. That happens when powerful people get power, but hold your horses. Because oppression can operate at an individual level, but it also can operate at a corporate level. We can collectively invite oppression. In fact, notice what Pharaoh is saying as he, as he is working through this. He says in verse 9, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Not for me for all of us. Verse 10, come let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and if war breaks out they join our enemies. So it's not just Pharaoh's fear. Pharaoh is appealing to the fear of the nation and he's saying they could take us over. You don't want that to happen, do you? Well, what do we have to do? We need to oppress them. We need to put them in slavery. Okay. Okay. So it's not just the oppression of one, but it is the oppression of many that has led to this slavery. Do you understand that? It's the fear of many that has led to this slavery. It's the watchers and the observers who say, I will not speak. Not because I'm scared of Pharaoh. That could be part of it. But also, I'm scared of losing my place. I'm scared they might take over. So I'm not going to say anything. Saints of God, sin drives oppression. And I'm not just talking about racial oppression or ethnic oppression. Sin drives oppression all the way down to child labor. You tracking with that? You say, how so? Well, there have to be goods to be purchased in order for child labor to even be a thing. There's collective power in purchasing those goods, right? We keep purchasing the goods even though we know that there are laws and practices or or, or there are practices at work that say that child's children are being abused and we keep purchasing the goods from people that we know are abusing those children, then what are we doing? We're sanctioning the oppression. Corporate power being used to oppress. But if we say, okay, I know that this group of people, this company, this industry is oppressing children, so I'm not going to participate in that. I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to take my money somewhere else. What are we doing? We're using our power to move a group of people towards liberation. Do you understand that? And so what I'm saying is, is that it doesn't just have to be racial and ethnic. It can be children. It can be prostitution. Pornhub, website that, is, that was recently um, put, in, put in hot water. Now, they've been operating as a, a, a website for years. But what happened? Well, they were, they were operating as a website, but they were not policing sex, sexual slavery. And people were videotaping and uploading these videos. But corporately, people begin to speak out. Corporately, people begin to hold Pornhub accountable. Corporately, industry be- begin to remove their advertising dollars from them. And what happened? Well, eventually, things had to change. you understand that? Corporately, oppression played a role. And so corporately, liberation, or, or corporately, people were liberated through the corporate efforts of people around them. And so here we see that sin plus oppression equals power. In addition to the dynamics around oppression, though, Exodus teaches us that God hears the cries of the oppressed. We hear it in in, in chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew Say to God, we've seen this over and over and over again. The oppressed cry out to God, and he answers mightily, and he answers boldly. But I'm not just referring to physical oppression. I'm also referring to spiritual oppression. Our sin condition has has allowed us to be what? bound, held in captivity, and in a worse state than physical bondage, because the bondage that that comes from sin will lead to eternal torment. And yet, our rescue from bondage is also based on a a promise. The physical bondage of Israel was based on a promise, but our spiritual bondage is also based on a promise. Recall right after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God gives them a promise. He actually speaks the promise in a form of a curse to Satan, to the serpent. He says, the Lord God said to the serpent, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what's happening in that verse, in verse 15? What's this talk about offspring and bruising of the head and, and, and bruising of the heel? Well, what's happening is God is promising that through the offspring of the woman, Satan is going to attempt to destroy God's plan for the redemption and deliverance of humanity. But that the child, the offspring, will ultimately have the last say, and the child will crush the serpent under his feet. That's what God is promising Satan, that you will try to destroy the child, But the child is going to destroy you and your work. And then in Genesis 22, we hear God speak to Abraham, and he establishes on top of that promise another promise. We hear in chapter 22 these words, He says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Again, we hear language offspring. What does it mean? Well, we heard in Genesis 3 that the offspring was going to crush the head of the serpent. Now we hear that the offspring is, that through the offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, Paul, the Apostle Paul, helps us make sense of it later on in the New Testament because he tells us in Galatians that the offspring that God is referring to when he speaks to Abraham is not just any old offspring. The offspring is Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ, though he will be bruised when he goes to the cross, he will crush the head of the serpent, and that Jesus Christ, through Christ, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And so God delivers based on a promise. He delivers Israel, but God delivers us, what? Based on a promise. Do you understand that? In other words, our God is a delivering God, delivering us, all of us, from bondage and oppression, except this is the worst bondage, and this is the worst oppression, because this is oppression under the devil. If you do not know Christ, then you are suffering from a greater oppression than physical oppression. You are suffering from an oppression that will lead to an eternal oppression. But through Christ, Satan's chains are loosed. God brings deliverance by sending his own son and rescuing anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Remember, we hear that God, or we see and we read in Exodus 2, that God hears the cries of the oppressed. Well, guess what he says in the book of Romans? Romans. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, the cries of the oppressed rise up to the ears of God. And he says, I must respond. Do you understand that? He's a delivering God who hears the cries of the oppressed, whether that oppression is physical and temporal or whether that oppression is eternal and spiritual. He hears the cries of the oppressed. Of the oppressed. Now, let me ask you one last question about a delivering God. To what end is God delivering? We've talked about this before. God is delivering to the end of worship, we are set free for worship. We hear this over and over and over again as we read through the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 7, verse uh, verse 16. Exodus chapter 9, verse 1. Exodus chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 9, verse 13. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 10, verse 3. This is what we hear in every one of those texts. Let my people go that they may serve me. Over and over and over again, let my people go. The song, the song gets it half right, right? Let my people go. No, let my people go that they may serve me. That's an important part, saints. Even in chapter 10, right after the plague of darkness, we hear this very important exchange that God makes, um, that God makes this point for us in. In Exodus chapter 10, Pharaoh calls Moses after a plague of darkness, completely takes, uh, covers his land. And Pharaoh says, Listen, go and serve your Lord. Get out of here. Take your children too. Go, go. Get as far away as you can. Only, only leave your flock and leave your herd behind. Leave your herds behind, rather. Moses says, no, you, you got you to let us take the herds too. You got to let us take the flocks too. And he says this, he says, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to our Lord. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God and we do not know what, with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there, until we get there. In other words, Moses refuses Pharaoh's offer for freedom because he doesn't have the means to worship God rightly when he leaves. Do you understand that? He says it's not, just, it's not just freedom that we're asking for. It's freedom to serve. It's freedom to worship our God. God doesn't give us freedom for freedom's sake. I need you to hear that. God does not give us freedom for freedom's sake. He is giving us freedom so that it might lead to our worshiping of him. Brothers and sisters, if you are given freedom and you don't use it for worship, you're wasting your freedom. In fact, if you are given freedom and you don't use it for worship, the chances are you are bound to something else already and don't even realize it. Because your hearts were made for worship. And so if you are given freedom and you don't utilize it to worship the one true God, you are taking that freedom and offering it to a false God who is keeping you bound. In other words, you may be free from drugs, but if you don't use that freedom for service to Christ, then you probably already moved to a more subtle form of bondage somewhere else. Maybe now you're bound to your success, and that's why you're continually chasing it. And no matter what level you reach, you're still unsatisfied. And whenever you're denied an opportunity, it doesn't just simply disappoint you, but it destroys you. Maybe now you're bound up in money, and it leads you to be less generous and always thinking you don't have enough, no matter whether your bills are paid or not, and no matter whether you got clothes in your closet, no matter whether you have food on your table, no matter whether you have cars in your garage, you're always saying, I need more, I need more, I need more. Maybe now you're bound to your image and people's opinion of you, which leads you to think nonstop about who likes you and who doesn't like you. When the truth is, you're not on people's mind as much as you think you are. Nobody's thinking about you that much. But you're so consumed by your image that you think people are always thinking about you. Maybe you're so bound to your own beauty that you are constantly nonstop in modifying your appearance, running from one outfit to the next, running running up your debt just to buy your shoes. Even when we look at Israel, when they lost sight of worship of God and their freedom, what happened? They created new gods to worship They created new gods. They ran back to to the old gods. They created new gods based on the old gods. They created cows and, you know, they went back to Egypt, so to speak, in their minds and in their hearts. Saints of God, your freedom is intended for worship. And when you don't use it for that purpose, we will squander it by turning to more subtle forms of bondage. So our God has come out not just to deliver us from bondage, but he has come forth to deliver us from bondage to uh, to, to himself. From bondage to himself. From bondage to worship. And he does this through Jesus Christ. And in Christ we are given a true and abiding freedom out of bondage to worship a living savior. That's what your freedom is for. Last thing, last lesson. Our God is a sovereign God. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, we hear these words from the Lord. God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel I am has sent me to you. I am that I am. I am who I am. This was God declaring to Moses his name. It is a name that signifies lordship and authority and and power. My sons and, and, and I are huge Marvel fans. We watch all the TV shows, we go see the movies. Yes, we have already seen Black Widow. Tried to go Thursday, tickets were sold out, so we ended up going Friday early. But I believe my youngest is the biggest Marvel fan in the house. We all watch all the movies together. um, It's it's a big father-son thing. We, we, We invite my wife to tag along. Sometimes she tags along, sometimes she doesn't. Sometimes she tags along and she's not really there. She's just, she's in her own place. She's somewhere else. But it's a big father and son thing to go see these movies and watch the TV shows. Well, Marvel has these godlike characters that are very prominent in their universe. And the, and the, the, two, the two most popular ones are, or one of, two of the most popular ones are Thor and Loki. Thor is called the god of thunder, and Loki is called the god of mischief. But what's interesting is how they introduce themselves. Thor often says, I'm Thor of Asgard or Thor, son of Odin. And Loki often does something similar. These very powerful beings, in fact, they are godlike in the Marvel Universe. They use their titles to communicate their origins, and that communication is an acknowledgement of sorts that although I am extremely powerful, I come from somewhere. But this God that speaks to Moses from a burning yet unconsumed bush, announces himself as, I am that I am. I don't come from somewhere. The somewhere comes from me. I am that I am. I don't have an origin. All origins come forth out of me. I am that I am. That's why I can speak from a bush on fire while leaving the bush intact. I don't need the bush's leaves and sticks to keep the fire burning. I produce fire out of nothing because all fire comes forth out of me. I am that I am. God is basically saying in this name that there is no one before me, and there is no one that has designed me, and there is no one that has made me. I am. From I am, I am of I am, I am that I am, I am who I am. Now, what does this mean? This means that this God is 100% in control of everything. God is not bothered by the attempts of evil men and women to thwart his plan. The psalmist writes in Psalm 115 verse 3, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. In other words, our God is above all of this and he does whatever he wants to do. Yeah. I am Who I am is not controlled by anyone, nor does he defer to anyone. In fact, we learn in Exodus that even in the midst of the most horrific and tragic of circumstances, God is orchestrating the terms of Israel's deliverance. Even while all hell is breaking loose, God is orchestrating the terms of the deliverance of his people. When we look at chapter 1, Verse twelve it says, "The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel." And so, in other words, what happened was Pharaoh said, "I need to enslave them. Why? Because I'm scared of them taking over." Remember, unhealthy fear leads to desperation, leads to and sin, and sin leads to oppression. Sin plus power equals oppression, so he moves to oppression, but Israel keeps growing. And so Pharaoh moves from oppression to infanticide. Verse 15, we hear, then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Again, you see how oppression works. Out of fear, we become desperate. They're continuing to increase. They're continuing to grow. Out of sinful fear of losing control, he exerts more power. And there is no being on the face of the earth more powerless than an infant. And so he moves to the worst kind of, an oppression even worse than slavery. He moves to killing all of the newborn. There's possibly a a mother even, possibly a, a couple watching right now who may be wrestling with the fear on the brink of taking a desperate step. Let me speak to you for a moment. If you're watching, no other command do we hear more in Scripture than the command to fear not. But that command is not just a command. That command is a comfort. There may be a mother who is thinking to herself, I am scared. You're not scared of losing power. You're scared of whether you can can provide for this child. You're scared of whether or not you can raise this child. And that fear is driving you towards a decision. That could be the worst that you've made. You do not have to fear, sister. Turn to I am who I am. He will be with you and he will provide for you. There's possibly a, a struggling single that, that, that's here in the midst of us that, that may be watching you may be fearful, and that fear is leading to the desperation of taking the wrong step, committing yourself to the wrong person. For that struggling single, turn to I am who I am. He will provide, he will offer much grace for you in the midst, and in the, in, in the midst of the, the season of singleness as you, um, that you are in. As hard as it may be, let me encourage you, young mother-to-be, let me encourage you, young sister or young brother, turn your eyes from your lack and turn your eyes towards the one they call Jehovah-Jireh, God our provider. In fact, we see this in in, in this story in Exodus, that that, that God was standing sovereign over Pharaoh's attempt to kill this child in which he had established promise in, the promise of deliverance. We see it in chapter 2. Chapter 2, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, excuse me. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when, he, when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him, took for him a basket. The woman put the child in the basket and let the child go up the river. And Guess who finds the child? Verse 5, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew's children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Not only is this child rescued, but he's given the comfort of his mother to care for him and raise him and nurture him in the house of the man who was seeking his destruction. Why? Because I am who I am is sovereign over all things, including the deliverance of his people, including the protection of his promises, we see shades of this same story in, 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 in the gospel story as the sovereign God brings deliverance through the most horrific and tragic circumstances. In Exodus 2, he is rescuing a baby Moses. By giving him refuge in Egypt, as Pharaoh is seeking to stop God's plan through, uh, stop God's plan of physical and temporal deliverance. But in Matthew 2, we see the baby Jesus find refuge in Egypt, as Herod sought to stop God's plan of eternal and spiritual deliverance. This same child is, 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 uh, grows up and lives a spotless life, lives a perfect life, but is still brought forth on trumped-up charges. Is still brought, for, is still brought forth and, and accused for things that he did not do. And he is found guilty by mo- by a mob egged on by leaders who were what scared of losing their power and so in their attempts to oppress the Christ they sent him to the cross And what seemed like tragedy, what seemed like what was going to be a, 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 a good man who lived a great life and did good works but ended up being, being charged guilty and, and, being, and being run to a cross and crucified and buried and forgotten. What seemed like what was going to be a very tragic and horrific circumstance was changed in an instant because our God is sovereign. Because our God is sovereign. Because our God is sovereign, the Bible says that, that, that although Herod and, and, and Pontius Pilate and all the people and all the leaders had intended on destroying him, that, that they were doing everything in accordance to God's plan. Meaning that God was behind the scenes orchestrating everything. Just like he was behind the scenes with Moses, just like he was behind the scenes in Israel and through from Egypt to the wilderness, and just like he was behind the scenes moving Jesus to Egypt as a baby, he was behind the scenes in Jesus' crucifixion because after the crucifixion came the resurrection, out of death came life. Life not just for Christ, but life for you and me. And so now the question remains, why should we think that our circumstances are any different for our God? He is sovereign over it all. In every single one of these situations that we looked at, we saw inevitable tragedy, but God's hand moving in the midst of it to bring about the salvation of his people. And so, saints of God, the situation is the same for your life. What does that look like? I have no idea what that looks like for you. Does it mean that I'm going to be, does it mean that I'm going to have perfect health on this side of earth? I don't know. Does it mean that I'm going to have perfect, uh, perfect finances on this side of earth? I don't know. But this is what I do know, that God is in control of these circumstances and he is working every single one of them out to his expected end for you, which is your eternal deliverance from bondage. That if you cry out to this God, he will hear your cry and he will deliver you and rescue you through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. That is the assurance that we have. And so what we learn about our God is that our God is in control. and That he is in control in the deliverance of his people. And so whether you are struggling this morning, whether you are that mo- mother that's watching and, and, and debating what to do with that child in your womb, whether you are the single that's struggling in your life, whether you are the, 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 the man or the woman that is struggling in your body, that is sick in your body, I know, I know we have, bro- man, we have sisters in this church that are struggling mightily, I know it. This is the confidence that we have, saints, that our God is in control. Turn your attention to I am who I am and trust that he will bring about his expected end for you. His promises will not go unfulfilled. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you.